This is Leon McGrath Goodman, and you're listening to Column C. So we're finally here. We're here in Brattleboro, Vermont, in my office. I don't have COVID. <laughs> you, I don't have COVID. You don't have COVID, right? Not right now. So right now we have like this beautiful window where neither of us have COVID and we can talk in person and do a podcast. You're laughing because you think maybe one of us still has COVID? I think probably one of us has COVID right now. Yeah. But the chances are. So we're in Vermont, which is part of New England. And if you look at the maps, right, the New York Times is putting out like a map. They're probably spitting one out every 10 minutes, but they're putting out these maps that are shaded by like how COVID-y mm-hmm. the place is. And they're doing it a lot of the times by county or by, you know, region. Have you noticed that New England looks like like the really badly inflamed leg of the country? Like that like jets out. And it's like, I thought New England was supposed to be masking and being smart. And yet we seem to have the worst COVID. I think the locals would say that's because the COVID people are coming here. <laughs> the COVID is just coming here. Well, because from it was else. the least, because it was like, that's where there is no COVID. So let's go to that place. And that's how the COVID came. You don't think it's probably the locals' fault? Partly, at least. N- no, it's not the locals' fault. <laughs> no, it totally is. But. Uh, but that's the skinny. I mean, that's, yeah, well, that's, that's the local answer to your question. Okay. Fair enough. Right. You, and what else can you do? You live here. You're like, that is the answer. They brought it. They brung it. All yes. right. <laughs> I have seen a lot of people unmasking almost rebelliously, like in the last little while, like where I am, um, when I go to New York, you know, going back and forth between here and New York, I always feel like they're still being more careful in New York than I see them being in Vermont. I think the governor, it was like the governor said, okay, no mandated masks. And people were like, oh, good. The, the war's over. In Vermont? Yeah. Okay. Governor Scott. Governor Scott, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Our Republican governor who yeah. is in the progressive state of Vermont is always interesting. Yeah. Well, because he's like like a fiscal conservative. He's not a psycho. He's like Republican light, though, yeah. right? Yeah, like oh, in he's, the eyes he's a of rhino. other Republicans. He's a rhino. Ah, yeah. Yes, I didn't vote for him. I, to be really honest, I can't even remember the, the last election, even though I always vote. So I, but I know I didn't vote for him because I was like, Governor Scott seems like a milk toast. So I will just vote for. I don't like milk toast. I don't like somebody who's light anything. But that might just be me. Um, well, you. So the first time you used that word, and I thought it was two words. And I thought it had to do with breakfast. <laughs> it's not too, it's not milk toast. It's what does milk toast mean? <laughs> Maybe it comes from that in some way. I mean, I feel like it's spelled French because yeah. there's a Q-U in there. So, I, you know, I don't know the etymology of milk toast, but now I'm going to look it up. Okay. I'm going to look it up right away. Okay, so we're here. We don't think we have COVID. Um, any listeners are not going to get COVID, even if we do, because listening doesn't give you COVID that I know of yet. Like the latest variant doesn't do that. So I think the idea is to get some thoughts down because I'm going to be flying over to Jersey soon. And it's not Jersey, New Jersey for people who are new to Jersey. It's an island in the Channel Islands. And it's, it's the old Jersey to New Jersey, I guess. 
Um, it's a five by nine mile island, very tiny off the coast of France. It's about 12 miles off the coast of France. And it's an area I've been researching as an investigative journalist for several years. And Reggie, um, who is co-hosting this with me, has asked me several times, will we start to talk about this on a podcast at some point? And we're finally doing it. Um, so I'm Leah Goodman. I'm an investigative journalist. And you? And I'm Reggie Martell, and I'm the producer of this podcast. I'm the button pusher. The button pusher. Yeah. You're a lot more than that. I turn knobs, too. And we're trying to find some music for this podcast. So we should probably, like, sample a few things and then let people listening decide. That's, yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to release a, uh, an album about theme song outtakes. <laughs> It'll be called the Possible Podcast mm-hmm. Music Album. <laughs> Possible. Um, yeah, so I'm headed back to Jersey. I have not been there since in the before times, as they're calling it. And so I guess the last time I was there was November 2019. I was there with a filmmaker. We worked on a film, um, and it was produced um, and put out by the BBC, BBC4. It was a documentary that went out last year, um, and it's called Garen, Secrets of a Trillion Dollar Island. This is a tax shelter. Uh, they like the word, fi- they, they really like the term financial center. That's really what they like to go with. Over tax shelter, yeah. They're not interested in being called a tax haven or a tax shelter, but it's been a prominent tax shelter really since the 70s. And it's really a carve out of the United Kingdom. It's not part of the United Kingdom. But if you fly to Jersey, you're hearing people with what sounds like English accents. But all of the roads are in French. The legal system is all in French. And it used to be a part of of France. Um, And after William the Conqueror, uh, it became a land really controlled by British royalty. And so the queen is the head of the realm, as you say, and, and is in charge of the island. It's really what you call a peculiar possession of the British crown. It's uh, supposed to be a democracy under a constitutional monarchy. Yeah. However, we have found that the democratic part of Jersey is something that looks more like a veneer and not really actually it's not real. It's in a veneer, but it's really truly controlled by people appointed by the queen. It was fun because I'm like, I was going to ask you, how, where do you even start this story? And you're okay. So you're going back to 1066, William the Conqueror. Why, why are you writing about Jersey? So I, I'm not really going to write about William the Conqueror, which is good because I, Frankly, Jersey and its history, it goes way back, way before William the Conqueror. And I was just telling Reggie yesterday, there's a building on the island called La Hougue B. It's a very old name, and no one really knows what it means. We know Hoog means mound or heap, and it's a reference to a burial mound in the old Jersey French. But B, which is spelled B-I-E, no one actually knows what B means. And this building is considered one of the top 10 most old structures in the world. Um, It's supposed to date back at least 6,000 years. We were trying to figure out what was going on 6,000 years ago. Like, what were people doing? Well, what they were doing was they were building these churches with these burial mounds that have a chamber that lights up, like, on the solstice. They were clever enough 6,000 years ago to have 
a calendar, right? And to be able to do the math. And so whoever was building this was fairly sophisticated. I could not do that. No. I would not know how to do that. So we, I think we always dismiss early man. But whatever was going on on the island of Jersey was pretty sophisticated even then, right? Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. And it's still sophisticated now, but now it's a tax shelter. So uh, how do you tell a story of a place with an ancient history but also with this really interesting current day structure, I feel like the two definitely have to be told. I feel like both are important. Understanding where a place comes from really can help you understand what's causing things to happen today, even if they're not directly related. A history of something is really important. And the island has such a rich history. You know, it was invaded by the Romans, the Vikings, then the, the French were running it and then the Nazis. And so, you know, now it's the English, uh, it's the queen. But what does that mean when you're such a tiny island and you've had so many things happen? And that to me is part of the story of Jersey and part of its story of survival through all of these centuries and, and millennia, really. And how I tell any story, I feel like you do have to go back, right? You have to go back to the origins of each thing you're writing about. Yeah. So you can understand it better. What put it on your radar? I was not aware of Jersey growing up. We didn't learn anything about Jersey in our history classes. We, we didn't learn anything about the Channel Islands. I, I even feel like islands are left out of history in general, unless you're talking like Bikini mm. Island and the nuclear tests, yeah. right? But I mean, we don't learn that much about these smaller jurisdictions. But there is this old Jersey to New Jersey, and it does have a connection. Um, and I never knew about the old Jersey. I was living in London and I met an American flying back to New York. And she told me the story of Jersey because she was working and living on the island. She had grown up in the U.S. and had married a local Jersey man. And she said, nobody ever visits me. Nobody ever comes to the island. And I would love for you to come visit. We kind of sat on the plane and like made friends. And by the time I left, I promised her I would come visit her on the island, which was kind of a wild thing to do when you meet a stranger. Yeah. But she was so sweet and she was so adamant that no one ever came. And she really sounded like Americans just wouldn't come. And she also made a comment about she worked for a bank on the island. The island has like an A to Z list of pretty much every major global bank in the world. Every bank you've heard of pretty much, every big bank. Almost all of them have an office on the island of Jersey because of the tax shelter financial center Mm -hmm. part of it. And she worked at one of them and she said to me, it's got like a very strange structure here. And she mentioned the Catholic Church and the Church of England and the Freemasons and a lot of corruption and a lot of things going on within the banking system. And at the time, because I'm just riding on a plane and talking to this other American woman, I was thinking some of that sounds pretty far-fetched. You know, she did make it sound convincingly like there might be some shenanigans going on. Mm-hmm. So I didn't just dismiss that, but she kind of made it sound deeper, darker, and kind of a little bit more with some ancient origins than I would have guessed. And she also told me about, you know, different things that she would see on the island or different 
she talked, she was the first person to tell me about like devil's hole, which is where like in Jersey, there's like this one area where when the water flows between the cliffs, it has a very steep tide in Jersey, one of the steepest tides in the world. Mm. And apparently it makes like a sound, like a roar. And there's literally a like giant devil statue standing in the waters and she told me that it was the figurehead of a ship that had a devil's head yeah. that had washed up and that they had used the head and made the body to make this huge statue. And I just thought it was like a normal size statue. It's like huge, huge. And when she first told me about it, she said, I think it came from a pirate ship, you know, but here she is, she's American and she's just being told what would be folklore, right, to a lot of people. So she told me these kind of weird stories and I was intrigued. I just, that was really how I first heard about Jersey, how I first came to the islands. Otherwise, normal lady is telling you these, like, fanciful. Yeah, she's telling me these stories that seem very fanciful and in many ways, like, not real or not mm. what most people would think sounded real. And so when I went to the island for the first time, I did keep my promise. I did go to see her. And that was sort of my first trip to the island. And I was totally enchanted. I thought it was beautiful. We we got to go. We usually went in November, which is not the high season, but it was still like stunningly beautiful. It has nature and uh, nature kind of, it's like mind blowing. Like, like you would, pl- you'll see a plant that you recognize, but it's like 20 times bigger and looks much more like lush than <laughs> what you would normally see that plant look like anywhere else. I don't know if it's the sea air combined with the soil. Uh, Jersey is known historically for farming, and and that's where Jersey potatoes, and we talk mm-hmm. about Jersey yeah. cows, Jersey yeah. cream, really, like, it was known for its, really, it's kind of its bounty from its land. And it is stunning, like, the trees, the flowers, the plants. Uh, it's really hard not to be impressed by the natural beauty of the island, and it also has quite a like interesting ecological culture and you know, one day maybe I'll write a book about Jersey nature and Jersey animals, (laughs) but it's a very special place. And so I fell in love with it and I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anyone on the Island other than this friend when I started. And I didn't know anything about how the Island, I did not know about the Island's financial system or political system at that time. You are a person who will meet a stranger on an airplane and then go visit them. (laughs) later on i did i I promised i told her i'd come before the year was out and i felt like i had to keep my promise okay it just we're just establishing a baseline what do you think the significance of that is Uh, i think it's outside of the scope of what most people would do (laughs) how diplomatic an answer was that <laughs> well, I don't know what you really wanted to say, so I can't tell you. But uh, but I will say, yes, it is outside of the scope. I would say a lot of what it, my life is has been outside of the scope of what people would do. So that's sort of that's the story of my life. It's foreshadowing. That's that's. Oh, you're foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Oh, okay. Active foreshadowing. So the reason why we're talking sort of so carefully about what caused me to even go to Jersey is that once I started to learn more about Jersey and research Jersey, I realized that it really was a very interesting place for many different reasons. But the thing that really galvanized my attention was just a couple years after I first went to the island, I think it was only like a year or two after, there was a very sad, um, scandalous, terrible piece of news that came out of the island that made global headlines. And it was this 
situation surrounding a children's home called Hot de la Garen, which again is a French term, but it, it seems to loosely translate to top of the Warren. And it's this children's home, giant stone Victorian children's home on a hill near the ocean in Jersey, where it seems for decades children were abused and there were reports coming out of this home for many years that were ignored. And finally, the police said, right, we're going to really try to get to the bottom of what happened at this children's home. And they started a dig at the home. And this just absolutely caused many people in power across the island to kind of raise their heads and push back really hard. And I'd never seen that as a journalist before. And when I say that, I mean, there were people who were completely opposed to investigating the island. It was called Operation Rectangle, and it was a dig under the home, and it it was kind of a long time coming. Everyone knew about Hatzel Garen. When I've interviewed people on the island, they're like, even when we were little, they would say, if you're bad, you're going to get sent to Hatzel Garen. And one of the people I interviewed said, everyone knew that that was the worst thing that could happen to you. You could never end up there that you were done for if you went to Hatzel Garen. And so you, this was a place that even when people didn't understand what was happening at this children's home, and didn't have any real information. It was still understood to be uh, tantamount to terror and fear and horror and kind of an unknown, like kind of you'll go there and it's like a Bermuda's Triangle. And that's what we found in many cases to be true, where there were incomplete records or we had pieces of information, but there was no further information. We don't really know exactly what happened to this day at Hot Deli Garen, but we have pieces that can help us lead to conclusions and we can still report what we're finding. And so I've been focused on that, but it's not because it's just any children's home. It's a children's home where when the dig began, instead of the community supporting getting to the truth or finding the truth, we saw a community that behaved as though it didn't want to know the truth and very powerful people coming forward to try to stop this investigation from moving forward. And also those in charge of the investigation being persecuted and attacked and in fear of their lives and their families' lives. And I had just never seen that before in what you would call democracy, a Western democracy where typically police are allowed to do their jobs unimpeded, especially when it comes to children. That was not the case. And that's why this particular case on this particular island really got my attention. Yeah, so how do you go from somebody who visits a stranger here to suddenly covering this this intense story? Like prior to this, you're writing about financial matters. Yeah. 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 I was largely doing uh, financial investigative journalism, lots of other types of writing, but like with a real focus on financial journalism, this Island is a finance center slash tax haven, however you want to call it. But it, it was not something I was visiting initially to look at its financial system or financial shenanigans. I was there as a tourist, really, as a visitor. And I really fell in love with the island as somebody who wanted to just enjoy the island, enjoy seeing my friend. And the beaches are beautiful. They also have, um, because the Nazis did invade the island during World War II, there's like Nazi war tunnels. They're completely fascinating. The history of the island 
in and of itself is like a 10 volume set. <laughs> it's just a very interesting history, very layered. And, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it all forward. right now. But not the, all right now, but going forward. You can't yeah. peel the onion in one podcast, but it's, it's, it's really bottomless. And because of that, my interest had nothing to do with finance or looking at their financial system um, or how they handled um, anything related to finance. So the dig under the children's home took place while I was writing my first book, the asylum. And it caught my attention because I already knew Jersey. I knew what Jersey had been visiting Jersey for years. And I just kept my eye on it. Obviously I was busy with a book, but I kept my eye on it. And I noticed how quickly the investigation was being interfered with. And that got my attention. It wasn't a lot of people have said to me like, well, child abuse happens everywhere. You know, there's horrible things that happen at children's homes everywhere. And they try to sort of normalize that this isn't anything to look at because it happens so often. And I say, yes, child abuse happens far too often. But this reaction, this response, this investigation, this particular place in this particular time was highly unusual in what we saw take place because we saw everyone trying to get to the truth being not just targeted, but like wildly, openly, wide open, absurd attacks on them that were not being done quietly. They were being done very publicly. And the local newspaper was involved in trying to smear people and local politicians with much power were standing up and trying to attack the police officers and other politicians who were trying to get to the bottom of what happened at Hot Delegaran. I had never seen such a fight before that was that open. You would think anyone trying to push back on children uh, and what might have happened to them, any investigation. Where I'm from, if you want to push back against something like that, you better do it really quietly because you don't want to be known as the person who doesn't want to find out what happened to children or doesn't want to make sure children are safe. You don't want to be that person. But there were a bunch of people on the island who were furious at these police officers and furious at any politician who wanted to find out the truth. And I just had never seen anything like that in my career. And I'd, at that point, I'd had a 20-year career writing about all sorts of things, including human rights things. And I just had never seen anything like that. And I thought, what kind of a government and system and framework produces this many people who don't want to stop child abuse um, or try to make excuses or try to stop others who are trying to apprehend child abuse? So that was my you know, first focus in looking at it, it had nothing to do with finance. As I found out later, it has a lot more to do with finance than I thought. And it has a lot more to do with the island's global reputation and status as a tax shelter. Where were you getting your information then? Was it, was it news accounts that you were reading or was it just from scuttlebutt from people you knew? Well, there were, there were global headlines talking about the status of the, the obstruction day. part of it or the smearing it talked about everything It talked about everything from the beginning of the dig to what they were finding. And they were finding effectively small children's remains, small bones, teeth. And then we saw that they thought they had found what the pathologist identified as a piece of juvenile skull, child skull. And then there was a really big fight over that. Um, and that changed, that story changed four or five different times. They went back and forth between it's a skull, it's a piece of wood, it's a piece of coconut shell. When I saw that, I just thought, 
well, come on. I mean, we're not living in a, in a dream world. We, I, it's, it's an object. Let's just find out what this right. object is. How hard. is it that we can have this kind of a fight? I mean, the difference between bone and wood and vegetation, right? Coconut is pretty, pretty big. If you are analyzing that material for, in a lab, right? It's not the same. It's not close to the same. So for everyone to fight about that, like it was a reasonable argument to have immediately for journalists you look at that and say that well that's something dishonest is clearly going on what exactly it is not clear to to know from that vantage point i was writing a book i was living in new york i was watching the headlines at that point i wasn't on the island so at that point i thought i gotta find out what's going on on yeah you're not reporting on it at that point at all yeah i'm not reporting on it i'm simply more more or less researching it sort of on the side um, but I thought to myself at that point, I was bonded with the island. So I thought to myself, well, I can't just sit here and not look at it. I have to look at this. And that was how it started. And I did. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah. But- so what does that look like? So, what, okay. So when you make that decision, you're like, I'm hopping on a plane. I'm going to go there. I'm going to start talking to people. Well, I had to pass in a book. So it took a little while and I had a fellowship I was finishing, but during the fellowship, I was flying back and forth. And then at the end of the fellowship, which was at the University of Colorado at Boulder, that was in 2010, 2011, I was at the School of Environmental Journalism, but I was still following Hot de la Garen. And at that point, I was, I was visiting and meeting with different people on the island and getting in touch. What I found was most of the people being attacked, the politicians, the police, and others, most of them did not want to talk to a random journalist reaching out, right? Most of them just either were not responsive or just said they didn't want to talk about it. And part of that was because they didn't know how to protect themselves at that time. And they didn't know I was going to be fair with them. Right. And to me, because the scandal got so enormous surrounding the police, it came down to from the start in my mind, it came down to it's going to have everything to do with whether or not these cops seem like they were really trying to get to the truth or if they just kind of made a mess, right? It's going to really come down more, more than anything else to getting to know these two cops, the two lead, there's a lead investigator. And then there was the chief of police. The lead investigator was the one on the ground every day, Lenny Harper, and the chief was Graham power. And I met Graham and Lenny. Lenny was much more fearful of meeting because he had already, he'd been on the front line and journalists had treated him very poorly in many instances, just dismissing what he was saying they were finding. And the worst of it was happening right on the island where the newspaper was, you know, the local newspaper was just attacking him left, right, and center. It was, it was comical, the stuff that they were posting. They tried to, um, he was doing everything he could to get resources for the investigation because it was so, so over the top and what they were finding was so frightening. And so he was trying to get, you know, everything he could from cadaver dogs, dogs that like run around the property and try to smell whether or not it can smell human cadaver. Yeah. They can't detect homicide, right? Cause homicide is an act, but they can detect if they're smelling dead human and they did. They smelled it all over the place. And he has a video of the dog responding when the dog barks, when it smells human cadaver. He has videos of how the dogs reacted. People were like, these dogs are, you know, there were people who were slagging off on the dogs. It just, the man who brought the dogs in, the, the handler, 
is very expensive and those dogs are extremely expensive. And so like Lenny was able to get a favor from someone so that they could get the dogs without having to pay so much. He had and to yet, ask for a favor. He was doing his best to keep the bill down. But what happened was he took, I think the handler out to dinner and a few of the others, whenever somebody did something that was really expensive as a favor, what he would do is try to take them out for a good meal. Right. And he would give, he would spend on the meal and the newspaper turned it into the celebrity lifestyle of Lenny Harper because he was going to nice restaurants with some of these people as a thank you for the fact that many of them were providing free services that the island was trying to control the budget for this investigation. But the newspaper was constantly spinning things to make it look like he was trying to put his hand out, which was exactly the opposite of what was happening. So I thought, I need to meet these police officers, find out what their actual story is. And it was after meeting both Graham Power and Lenny Harper in person that I decided this was a reasonable story to pursue because they were both not defensive at all, not defensive at all. And they were both very much like, oh my God, we're doing everything we could. They both were very solid, um, super strong people, like not, not willing to be intimidated, not willing to be pushed around and not willing to go along to get along when it came to things like crime, right? Like yeah. especially crimes against children. So so let's summarize briefly. What we're talking about is police officers investigating potential death of children on this island. And people are pushing back and... Making it socially, financially, and like logistically impossible for them to do their jobs without constant interference. They had to call in favors to get help with an investigation into missing children. I'm just like that to me, like to the person in my perspective who's, I mean, I'm right now I'm literally going through what probably what you went through back then where you're saying, what is what is happening? Like what? Yeah, what could cause this all to happen this way? Like Why how could be, it be so bad? This is not normal behavior. What the hell? Yeah. And so once I met them and I determined that they they seemed there was nothing about them that was cagey. They were they certainly were really reluctant to talk. But once I made the effort to actually meet them in, like in their homes or in their, their locations, and I think they realized I was serious and I really tried to explain to them, like, I think it's important to figure out what happened, like what went down, because this, from my perspective, and I wasn't on the island, but it was easy for anyone watching events to see that it wasn't looking very legitimate and that somebody must be to blame for the mess. And when I met them, it seemed that they both strongly believed that that having done everything they could, they were still, you know, being put in a position where their families were frightened or they were being threatened. And it was a very difficult situation. They have been completely vindicated. Nobody says anything bad about them now. But it took years of writing about this and and many people coming forward telling their stories about that Lenny and Graham actually treated the survivors of abuse. And there were over 150 people. Actually, no, I think it was almost 200. I think it was almost 200 people who came forward 
they had a global internet, <laughs> a global hotline because there were people in international locations calling in who had all had abuse happen to them on the island. When you say and, the legitimate piece, it's like when you're talking about it, it yeah. was legitimate. You're talking about these accusations didn't come out of nowhere. Like they're they're actually looking into something that oh wow something really did happen. Yeah, they were looking at and the police officers were treating the survivors and and victims like humans and taking them very seriously and making sure that the stories were corroborating each other, right? A lot of the stories in the end, I think they, there was over 150 people were accused of doing the abuse. It wasn't a small number of abusers. It looked like more or less that for some time there'd been almost like a free for all situation going on where pretty much anyone could come to the children's home and take a child out on their boat or take a child out for a drive. Or one, one survivor said to me, when somebody takes an interest in you and nobody else cares about you, I was told by the people at the home, like, why are you complaining? Somebody wants to take you for a nice drive. Like, just go. Like, there was a whole lot of sort of not caring about how the children felt or giving the children any agency and who they wanted to be taken out yeah, with. Yeah, who, the, who are these children? Yeah, a lot of these children now are like our age. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s. But uh, this, this But at home, the time, what was their, like, why were they in the home? What was the... The home itself was in the beginning a, a school for boys, like a Victorian school for boys. It was kind of considered an industrial school uh, in the 1800s for just boys. And it was actually opened to be helpful, like to give them um, real life skills, teach them something. But then it became co-ed and then it became over time a children's home. And as many different people from Europe came and emigrated into the island, and a lot of them from Ireland as well, Many of them found there weren't any accommodations for their children, and so the children would end up in the home. So for some time, it was also a home for immigrant children, which I think is how it became increasingly a target because it was this idea of, well, these aren't even our children. They're, you know, These are immigrants' children and sort of this idea of othering the group of children who were in there. So there was a period of immigrant children, which was pretty predominant for some time, and then children who came from families on the island who were too poor to support all of their children or uh, as a lot of the kids say like you know kids who were misbehaving would sometimes be sent to the home but it seems like the spectrum of misbehavior was really wide like you could have just been misbehaving a little and end up there or you could have been like really a problem and ended up there but because there wasn't a big distinction made a lot of the kids talked about you know, we were all being lumped in as like the same class of kid. And then once you were there, you were just treated very poorly. And and it doesn't mean that no one who worked there, like there were some people who were, who were described by the children as kind. Like there were, it doesn't mean every single person who walked through that home who was an adult was bad. But overall, the children weren't protected enough and it became very easy for someone who wanted to be uh, a bad actor to go ahead and be one and and to be involved with the children in ways that were not appropriate. And this went on for decades, for a very long time. It closed in 1986, but some of the people I've interviewed continued to be abused at the location after the home was literally closed, that there were people taken to that location and abused there. And so the home itself is not a safe place, in my opinion, for children, because there does seem to be an attachment by some of the abusers to the location. The BBC actually filmed a television show at the children's home. 
a television show. This still is an amazing thing to me. The show was called Bergerac. It was sort of like a British style dragnet show. And in the 70s, they would actually park their trailers in the yard and the kids were still there. And so why, you know, one of the kids said to me, you know, it seemed cool that there were these celebrities coming and going at the home. But then you grow up and you look back and this was a quote, our quote from him. He said, he said, and you go, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Why, why would that be allowed? Why would this be allowed? So I think a lot of it comes down to too many things were going on that were not well regulated, not not good decision making. And the children were being treated more or less as chattel. They were not being treated as humans or people who were being protected or looked after. They were they were really being treated as commodities, more or less. And, and they were being used in ways that many, many times allowed somebody to be predatory and cause the children to become victims. So it's not, it's no wonder there's so many of those survivors who called in with their stories. Is it drawing predators too? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's like, let's go there. Like I'm a pedophile. I want to go there. I mean, I think we can all agree that it's highly likely that if something has a few incidents, it's of course not everybody's going to know about it or come there. But like once you have been established as, as like a decades long bad place for children, it's pretty hard not to draw people. And there were people who went out of their way to go to the home or be at the home or were attracted to the home. We, we definitely have a history of that. So and some of them were very prominent. I mean, there were certainly the usual riffraff, but there was also these very prominent people who were pillars of the community or well regarded. There was somebody from the police force who was involved and that I mean, actually more than one person, to be honest. And there were politicians who were involved and there were all sorts of VIPs like Jimmy Savile, who was a really big star at the BBC. Right. And he wasn't even involved in the BBC television show that was filming at the home. He was a totally different character, yeah. but he was one of the BBC's biggest stars at one point. Friends of the royal family, friends of Margaret Thatcher, friends with Ted Heath. And he would come to the home and later on he denied being there and then photos came out showing him with the children and some of the children said he had abused them. So it was definitely not a good place for children to be. But what's concerning to me as a journalist now is the extent to which anyone looking at what happened is being obstructed. And so as I'm getting ready to go back to the island for the first time in um, a couple years, right? The last time I went was November 2019, and this is May of 2022. So it's been a while, but I never forget about the level of obstruction that goes on and how frightening that is because everyone, including me, has had people interfering with their work as they try to do the investigations, do the interviews, and get to the truth. Like literally one of the first photographs I've ever seen of you is you in, what is it called? Like a holding cell at Heathrow Airport. And that was not voluntary. <laughs> Had you started reporting on it? Like you were actually publishing stuff about Jersey? No. But you would, okay. So what happens? You're writing and then at some point they, what happened? So I had not 
started publishing, I was working on a book, but it was not, and, and I'm working this book because so many things have happened. The book, which was supposed to be this just lean little tome, that was the intention. Ha <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because it's a sad little laugh. (laughs) I passed in my big book and I thought, I'll go to Jersey. I'm going to write about this. It won't be a big book because this is a little island and it's one incident, but it certainly looks like a very interesting thing to, to try to unpack. And then as I did the research and traveling to the island more, really a, a lot more in 2010 and 2011, in late 2011, I decided, okay, I need to like stop spending so much money on hotels on the island because it is actually quite expensive. And so I found a little flat that was less money than basically the average of what I was spending on hotels. And it's a, they have really strict rules in Jersey. Nobody can just show up and move there. You can't just live there. But you can get what is called a non-domiciled flat, meaning this isn't your residence. It's not your official residence, but you have a place you stay that you pay for here. And so I got one of those. And to make sure that everything was on the up and up, I actually called Jersey Immigration and told them I wanted to meet and make sure everything was ready and looked good with the paperwork and with my my status. So I came and met with them. They were really cordial. They knew I was a journalist, but they certainly didn't seem to have their hackles up and Toward the end of the chat, they they said that it was okay that I was on a non-dom flat. It's called non-dom, non-domiciled. I was in a non-dom flat, and they said it was fine. And then as I was leaving, they said, by the way, what are you going to be writing about? And I said, oh, I'm going to be looking at the situation surrounding hot delegaren. Now, was that crazy to say that, to tell them what I was looking at? I knew, based on what I already knew about the island at that point, that it was a risk, but I also didn't think that it would be any good to mislead anybody about what I was doing. I just felt like it's kind of, this is where the rubber hits the road. Like I'm just going to have to be honest about what I'm doing. You know, as a journalist, you have to, you know, you really do when asked have to disclose what you're doing. Being deceitful is not part of the job. I mean, I know that journalists do do that, but I personally don't agree that you should be deceitful to get a story. And I think it also gives uh, journalists a bad name if they do that. So I was just like, you know, it was kind of one of those, I almost got out of here without having to talk about it, but I'm going to have to talk about it. So I told them I was looking at hot de la Garen. Well, you would have thought that like I flipped a switch in the room because they, they totally changed. Like yeah. it was like somebody ripped the arm off the record player, like, and I was just like amazed because the man who had been interviewing me, he's like, hold on a second. He gets up and he leaves the room and he comes back with his, clearly his superior. And they're just like, you need to get a writer's visa. You're not allowed to be here and you're not allowed to write without a writer's visa. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I had a business visa, which is a typical thing for a short stay. And they, they insisted this writer's visa and they handed me a piece of paper that said writer's visa and some other visas on it. And I, I just was like, I don't think so. I think I have the right visa. I've already checked with my embassy. They kept saying no. They're like, the Jersey people are saying no. Yeah. You need this writer's visa. Yeah, you, I'd never heard of a writer's visa. So, and no one had ever said I needed one. So they insisted I get it. 
it was a much like more gold plated, expensive, hard to get visa. But what I learned when I flew back to New York was that the visa wasn't even available anymore. It didn't exist anymore. They had discontinued it years ago. And so I called Jersey and said, Hey, um, I am finding that there's no such thing as a writer's visa. So what's your, you know, do you have any further advice? They said no, that they insisted it had to be a writer's visa. They insisted it did exist, but the UK embassy said it didn't exist. <laughs> so I'm like, can you guys talk to each other and decide what you want me to do? At that point, are you thinking they're messing with me or are they thinking they're like incompetent? I just didn't know. I didn't make it as, I didn't think that I needed to make a judgment about that because I'm not the visa expert, but I did know that a business visa was perfectly fit fitting. And I'd been, remember I'd been reporting and writing in England and in the, um, what they call like the common area. I'd been doing it for years. Like no one had ever tried to question my status. And I also was a tier one visa holder for a very long time in England, which is like, again, you can live and work in the region. So at that time I was traveling on a business visa, but it was also totally fine. So I wasn't terribly concerned. I did think they might be giving me a hard time, but I thought, but I know that this visa that I have is fine. So I wasn't worried. So when I flew back, I had to fly back because I was giving a speech in Austria for a business conference, but I thought I would stop in Jersey on the way. And when I went in, that was when I arrived at Heathrow airport and at the, at the passport check, they stopped me and wanted to interview me. And they insisted on like putting me in this little secondary area. They're like, can we ask you some questions? And I was like, of course. And I really was like, I was totally like, of course you can. Like, you know, I don't mind, but you didn't know why you were detained at that point. Yeah. They don't tell you why they just ask if they can put you here in this little gated area. I wasn't in the holding cell yet. I had to wait a while. And then someone came and said, we're going to go get your luggage because right. Your, your, your luggage is after the passport check. So my luggage is clearly sitting downstairs on the conveyor belt. Like no one's getting it. So we went there first, we got my luggage and then they took me into a back room area and like a back hallway area in the basement of Heathrow. And that's when things got weird. They started to process me. Like they took my luggage away. They took my purse away. Then they started to like take photographs and fingerprint me. And I just said, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking me questions. Like, are you arresting me? And they said, no, no, it's just procedure. And I said, a procedure for what? Yeah. And then they handed me a little tiny slip of paper, literally this, this big, like, like a, like like a little like bigger a, than a fortune cookie. A size. stick of gum. Yeah. It was like a stick of gum size. And they were like, it just said you have been detained under part whatever of section whatever of the statute. And I I can tell you exactly what it said, but it was basically just that. And it didn't tell you what statute. The statute. Yeah, of the yeah, it literally was written to make literally no sense to yeah. anyone coming in. Like it was not made to tell you anything, but that was what they handed you. And I just thought that was insane. So I, I waited. I, I, I let them go ahead and fingerprint and photograph me. I really didn't mind. I certainly was not okay with what was happening, but I didn't really see what I could do. What so, Are you worried at that point? Or are you just kind of yes, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also at that point, I don't know if they had locked the door yet, but basically I was not in a position where I could leave, right? I was, I was being put in a position where I really couldn't leave and I was being watched. So 
the next room I definitely was locked in and that was the holding cell. And they were just like, stay here and we'll be back. And I just didn't know what they wanted, but what they were doing was going through all my luggage. They were also calling my partner who was, um, who was at the time on the Island at the flat. Yeah. And calling and like grilling him and trying to get him to say, like, I think they asked him when, when are you guys flying out of the Island next? And we were, it was, uh, it was September of 2011. And he said to them, well, we're definitely going to be home for Thanksgiving, like meaning the U S um, he said, I, you know, Leah is in and out of here all the time. But, and <laughs> I just said, uh, I, I have no idea like why you would be detaining me. I'm not even like close to the limit of how long I can stay. The, the limit was six months. Right. So, I could stay at any time for, you know, weeks at a time, which is what I was doing. But I'd never been on the island at that time longer than maybe five weeks in a row. So the idea that there was, and I just got there, like I literally, I just got in the flat. So the fact they were acting so aggressive was really shocking. And I waited in the holding cell and I asked to call like my embassy, my lawyer, anybody, and they refused they told me that because I, I said, look, like, I mean, they're basic rights. And they said, no, you don't really have any rights because you're not admitted to England yet. Like you're on the border, but you're not in England. So rights, they basically said rights don't exist in this area. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, mm-hmm. but I found out later that, that Heathrow is a black site. So if you're not admitted yet, you're in the black zone, which is why that's a great place for them to grab people. So at that point, I'm sitting in a holding cell. I'm there for almost 12 hours. What the fuck? I it was know past you were there the legal. It was past the legal limit. They're not allowed to do that anymore. Not. I think the legal limit now is like six hours. But they. But they were communicating with Jersey. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I really didn't know what was going on and why I was waiting for so long. But they didn't question me. They were just going through my stuff and they were talking to Jersey. And I found out later because I filed for all of the paperwork related to my detainment. But in the end, they asked me some questions about where do you live on the island? Who are you talking to? You know, I basically, I was at that point, I basically wouldn't tell them anything. Yeah. I was being pretty um, pugilistic, I would say. Like I was very, very adamant that they release me and like just get out of my face. Um, I just found the whole thing incredibly intrusive and totally like, totally against what is considered like, you know, normal rights and freedoms in the Western world, definitely not a Western democracy type move. And because I wasn't like a threat to anything in particular, right, there wasn't any actual threat that anyone could could state or who, you know, the people interrogating me had no idea anything about Jersey. They clearly were just taking orders. You know, and at some point I said to the guy, like, this is happening because I'm investigating Hot Delegaren. You know that. Like, you've heard of this children's home? And he looked really distressed about that. He did not like that. I'm like, this is all happening because I am investigating child abuse. And he did not like that you were being detained for that reason. Yeah, he, he was did not like that he was, he definitely was upset during the interview about the fact that that this could be over that. Yeah. I, and I said to him, like, you're, you're part of this now. Yeah, you're the asshole. You're doing this? You're trying to stop investigating of child abuse and crimes against children. I'm like, you just need to know what you're representing. I would not wordlessly, soundlessly represent these interests if I were you. And he was like, I just remember his eyes. He was just like, he was mad and upset, like both. 
was not happy. And in his report, he was very angry because they were basically forced to write reports because I challenged what had happened. And like in his report, he was really angry about the whole thing. He, he certainly wasn't being kind toward me, but he also was being really angry about what the position he was being put in. Yeah. You're an American journalist. You're in Heathrow Airport. A reporter for the Wall Street Journal, or at least had been. I mean, that's like they know who you are. And I, yet they put you in a cage. Like, that's what boggles my mind. Like, what? I don't know if they really knew who I was. I think oh, I think they people. realized over time I was an established journalist. I do think initially they hoped that I was something that could just be crushed quickly. And they certainly felt like they had to do this big act of intimidation. But I think they, they thought that would be enough. So who is the they in that? It's not Heathrow necessarily. It's Jersey. Who's I don't know how many days there are at this point right, because, right, okay. you know, certainly people can see the work I'm doing. Like how many people are actively trying to make it harder for me is not something I'm, I get to know. But I do get to see if somebody stops me, right, because I'm directly involved in when somebody detains me. And that was not the first detainment. I was detained again. You know, it, it was more than one detainment that took place when I was trying to go over to Jersey to do research. That was the worst detainment because it was 12 hours plus. And they kept insisting that if I didn't cooperate, that I might be taken to a real offsite site. One of them said something like, you know, if you don't cooperate, we're going to have to take you somewhere else. And that is really going to be bad. Yeah. And they were pretty upfront about that. And so they kind of left me thinking that anything could happen. And they didn't tell me they had a limit, right? Like they made me think that I could be there for days or weeks. And they're not telling you anything. Yeah. they're not telling you anything at all. And so, you know, again, why can't I call a lawyer who could at least tell me, look, this is how this works. But they, there was no information, which is very stressful if you're there for that long. Yeah, they're putting the screws. Yeah. It's a windowless basement and yeah. you have no information. And also you can't call your family. You can't tell anyone where you are. So people who've been expecting you to arrive on a plane, you, you just don't even get off the plane. And then they don't have any information about where you went. Right. So that's just scary for pretty much everybody. And then... In addition, once they were done interrogating me, they came downstairs, they like took my wallet, right? I'm not allowed to have my own stuff anymore, right? I literally am not in possession of my purse or my passport. They pull out my wallet, take my credit card and just hand it to somebody at one of the, the gates for a flight to New York. And they just like charge this card some crazy amount of money. And then they throw me on the plane and get me the heck out of the country. And so I was deported on my own dime. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like without any of my consent, I didn't sign anything. I didn't. And they just frog marched me to the plane. And then they literally did a custody changeover where like they gave up custody of me. And then somebody on the plane took me, took custody of me. Like their the version plane of a marshal or something. Yeah. And I was just like spitting mad. Like at no time was I being... At that point, I was at my most ferocious and, you know, I wasn't physically resisting, but I was, I was vile, you know, vile about what they were doing. I was like, everything you're doing here is completely illegal. It's completely insane. And you're doing it because I'm investigating child abuse. Really? So it was very, you know, (laughs) it was, I'm laughing because it was so intense. And then I flew back, but I thought, you know, that whole time I was like, I'm not going to stop writing about this. 
I mean, you can push back, you can push back, but like, I'm still going to do this work. And, you know, everyone on the island, when I landed, they were like, we're not surprised if you just don't want to work on this anymore. One of the survivors said, I cannot believe you continued to work on it after they did that to you. Then they sent me a letter. I didn't tell you this. They sent me a letter like shortly after I got back to the U.S. that said, you are banned for two years for, you know, to, you cannot enter the UK common travel area, which includes Jersey. And I fought that and I won. They, they found out that it, somebody finally admitted it was illegal. But you needed help from like an MP. I had a lot of help. I had a help. I had help from an MP in England. I had help from an MP on the island of Jersey, actually several. And there were a bunch of journalists who were helpful as well. But it was still really painful and, and it was completely outrageous. And I think I was the first journalist in decades who'd been banned from England. And that was one of the points of the member of parliament who came forward, John Hemming. He was like, this is insane. We are now in the business of banning journalists from the United Kingdom because we're afraid of what they'll write. And he, he really like did a great job of like checking the record. Cause I didn't know what the record was in England. I thought maybe they do this more than we thought, but it is not something they typically do. And he also was the one who figured out that the writer's visa did, definitely didn't exist. And he pressed really hard, John Hemming for me to get a new visa. And I did, and it was with his help. But in the end, the final paperwork was held up like many more weeks than we understood that it should be like the average time and our time, our time was like three times the average time or something. And he finally called and said, what is going on? Well, what was going on was the UK was going to give me a regular work visa and, the, and, and Jersey was insisting that it was called a writer's visa because they wanted to be able to say that they were right. And so in the end, oh. I was issued a visa that didn't exist, that everyone agreed didn't exist anymore, but it still said on it, writer's visa. And I was like, wow, I am the only writer in the world to have a UK writer's visa. There's no other visa like it. And to this day, like I'm the only one who has a visa after the visa was discontinued as a writer's visa for the United Kingdom. And they created uh, an object that didn't exist and wasn't ever supposed to exist. And they did it. This shows you how Jersey is so strong. Yeah. Jersey basically made it happen yeah. for one reason. And that was they did not want to have to say that there wasn't really a writer's visa. So when I got it and I asked, how is this possible? I was told, well, Jersey authorized it as a Jersey writer's visa, even though it's also a UK visa. And it says UK on it, right? It doesn't say Jersey, but there's a stamp that says like Ballywick of Jersey. And then someone wrote writer. Yeah. Like, so it's like this, this is something I'm pressing on this because this is, this is essential Jersey. This is like a perfect metaphor for Jersey. When it comes to bureaucratic paperwork, if something isn't supposed to exist, they can make it happen. And that shows you something. It shows you that for a tiny island, they can still tell the UK, no, we're going to do it this way. And then the, and then that's what happens. The UK like says, oh, right, okay, I, I, we're just going to do it the way you said. And I'm not saying that the tail wags the dog all the time, but the tail definitely wags the dog when they decide it's necessary. And that really blew me away, blew me away. 
that Jersey had that level of, of um, punching above its weight in a way that I think nobody expected. To me, as a civilian, they have a lot of power. I'm like, well, first of all, I'm like, they're hiding something. Like, why would they do that to her? Like, they're trying to intimidate this journalist. Like, is and, and is that when you're realizing this too? Like, are you having that realization? Like, you're flying home and you're, are you going, oh my god, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah, I didn't know Jersey had that kind of power and I also it was when I got the records the records request for what happened in the back back channels during my detainment it had the same thing going on you you could see the UK asking Jersey what do we do with her more or less and Jersey being like we'll do this and do that and here's what we want and the UK was carrying out what Jersey was asking for and I just thought that is amazing so really like Jersey was kind of calling all the shots here um, How? the UK Why? was basically allowing them to do so. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that Jersey, it's a $2 trillion tax shelter and a substantial amount of that money is, is money from England. And they also, you know, the Queens bank is on the Island of Jersey. It's called Coots. <laughs> it's a funny name for a bank, C-O-U-T-T-S, but the queen banks in Jersey. And it's very, uh, it's very well known uh, in the sort of the quieter, more powerful parts of how the mechanics work of, of the government and of the banking system, the yeah. Jersey is a very important cog. In that as, a, as an American, can you tell me quickly, like what, what is the queen's money? Like her personal money? I don't know. I don't even really know what that means. I don't know how money works for queens. <laughs> I don't know how much money the queen has. I don't but think not anybody how much, knows. But like, she, it's like her personal bank account or something. Well, the, overall, the, the queen has many properties and lands from which she derives a huge amount of revenue, right? She owns a lot. I mean, she <laughs> some of the lands belong in Jersey, you know, like, and so you know, she actually has like, there are people who are buying or selling the queen's land on the island of Jersey. And so she has revenue that she gets from all of these properties, you know, whether it's buildings, whether it's land. And she also has like, you know, she's also what you call the, you know, the duchy of Lancaster. So which runs itself sort of like a hedge fund, you know, they keep money offshore, they use offshore vehicles and we don't know how much money is there, but you know, each of the key Royal family members have sort of a purse that comes from a certain part of the kingdom. And I think, you know, I was just talking to somebody last week about that supposedly the queen's purse gets passed to Prince Charles when she dies and then he takes over and then his purse gets passed to William and Kate. And apparently the Charles purse is even bigger than the queen's, but I don't know, right? I don't think any of it's public information, but there's somebody told me last week, well, Charles actually has the bigger purse. So he'll be getting the smaller purse when he's king and then it's going to be Will and Kate who get the big purse. And I said, I, you know what? I don't know how much is in these purses and it's not public knowledge, right. right? The people of Great Britain, they love their monarch, but they also don't get to have a lot of the information about what's happening behind the scenes with the money. And the queen has a very special relationship with what is called the city of London. 
people in London will constantly refer to what they call the city. And the city is like the old walled city. It was the central core of what is today's contemporary London, but much smaller. But it's where all the banking is now in London. And there's a mayor of the city. And yeah, and when the queen visits the city of London, she is not allowed to sit higher than the Lord Mayor. They have to sit at the same level. And when she crosses over, she has to do this little like bow, little dance with the Lord Mayor because the city is the purse, you know, the original purse. And the city of London is not just called the city of London. It's actually called the city of London corporation and is one of the most continuously running corporations that's ever existed. And it, it literally had royals indebted to it throughout the ages and so they have incredible power because they they exchanged lending to royals for over many, many years for power. Like, hey, we have the same power as you and you don't sit higher than we do. And so that's why there was this very weird relationship. But the financial relationships underpinning royalty and others in the city is completely fascinating. And a lot of it is kept pretty quiet. Like, you know, the, you can see it in the rituals, but you have to do a lot of research to find out why and how and who's doing what. And, you know, what is the significance of the city of London? And then what is the significance of a tax shelter that the UK really values like Jersey? And why is this so important? How much money are we talking about? Like most of the money is an estimate. It's almost no one other than the people holding the money, know exactly how much money we're talking about. So that gives a hint as to why maybe they're deferring. Well, and Jersey is semi-autonomous, even though it's a peculiar possession of the Queens. It has its own mint. It has its own parliament. It has its own police force. It has its own laws that are separate from the laws of the United Kingdom. It's like its own tiny country. And so I think you also have to consider its semi-autonomy. If Jersey says we can see this woman is flying to Jersey and this is what we want. I think that the UK also feels that they need to listen to Jersey because they can see in the flight. They do look at the flight manifest. They can look and see like, okay, Leah's going here and then here. And then, so if it looks like I'm headed to Jersey, they can call the UK and say, Roy, this is what we want you to do. And the UK you know, because Jersey is semi-autonomous, is going to try to respect how Jersey feels. So it's just not about only money. It's also about um, constitutional boundary lines and who gets to decide what, depending on what's happening. It's it's very interesting. And, you know, as somebody who's not much, I'm not an Anglophile. I would say I'm much more of a, like, natural Francophile. But because Jersey is English and French, it's, both, it's heavily both. It's kind of a sort of, wonderful, fascinating, like just endlessly, endlessly interesting mishmash of like a lot of different cultures. And then this ancient history too. And and we didn't even get into the Nazi influence on the island. The germ I should say the Germanic influence because there's still an interesting relationship between Germany and Jersey. And so like like I could go on and on. When my when my belongings were sent back to me after I was booted from the island they were diverted first to Germany and we could see like the UPS sending my things to Germany where they stood for like a week or two. And then they were sent to some other place in the United States to be processed and like analyzed. They clearly were going through everything. And I asked later why Germany and, and somebody over at ice 
here in the U.S., they said you were obviously being treated as a person of interest. They're never going to confirm that to you, but it's obvious. Immigration customs. It's Yeah, yeah. And he said they obviously treated you as a person of interest. And he said they're never going to confirm that. But, you know, sending your stuff to a different jurisdiction to maybe be looked at was a way of them not having to be involved in it directly. And then they were, it was sent to a processing center in the U S that was for deeper analysis of things, which I found it funny. Cause I'm like, I'm an American and this is happening on American soil. In addition. And I finally got my boxes back. There were like eight boxes. They were chopped up and razor bladed all over the place and they were falling apart. And UPS just dumped it on my step. And they were literally like, shoes were falling out and books were falling out and I brought them in and called UPS like what the heck and they were like sorry it was a bad pack I'm like well it was a bad repack I don't know how many times it was repacked but somebody had razor bladed them open like you could see the exacto knife across all of the boxes and when we asked for an explanation UPS finally said well there were some shoes in one of the boxes so there's foreign soil on shoes. And so it needed to be irradiated. And I was like, what? I'm like, are you telling me that when we walk onto a plane and then walk off a plane, right? How come we're not all being irradiated at the airport? So like that whole shoes thing was weird. Also, I didn't have dirty shoes and I didn't have, I had some high heels (laughs) and I like, I was just like, what are you talking about? So, and the the high heels were in one box. So it doesn't explain why all the other boxes were chopped up. But there was this whole thing about, we needed to look at her shoes. A friend of mine said, well, I never knew British soil was so frightening. And then she goes, I wonder who has the shoe fetish over at like UPS slash ice slash (laughs) Germany. Yeah. So like, here's the thing. The bottom line with Jersey is, I can tell a million stories like this all the times people's mail was opened up or people's stuff was messed with. But the bottom line is, is to do this work, not just by me, but by the police officers who were on the Island, the politicians who have continued the fight to find out what really happened. They all deal with this on a regular basis, this kind of thing on a regular basis, unexplained situations that are strange and that show a certain level of inspection and surveillance and interference that makes you say, what on earth is going on? Did that, so you're, you're flying home. Does that like steal your resolve? You're like, okay, I, I'm going back. I need to do this. Like, where's the, where's, think, where, yeah, where's the book at in your head at that point? I think a resolve was stealed while I was in detainment because my big thought in detainment was just, I had already talked to the survivors. I'd already talked to the police officers. I already had these relationships as a professional with these sources. And I just thought, I'm not going to be able to abandon these people. Like I knew that I'm not a person who can do that. Um, Not when you see something, I know I feel bad about this. It's like, it's actually an issue in my life in general. When I see something, I can't unsee it because I want to be political. I can, I can't unsee it because it's better to make nice noises and I can't unsee something I know is true just because it's inconvenient. I'm just that person who's like, my religion is, is truth. And I am open to the fact that there is objective truth, but there can also be people who have a personal truth, right? That could be coexistent with somebody else's slightly different truth. But I do not think truth is this very 
wide ranging debatable thing. I think that you can have multiple people in a room who experience the same event slightly differently. But I think that we all know that if somebody filmed that thing while everyone was in the room and they all had to rewatch that film, that there would be what we would call an objective truth. And right. that Your is truth, what my truth and the objective truth. Yeah. That's why police are wearing body cameras lately is because there is such a thing as an objective truth. So whatever people want to say about what they think it is, there is one and there is an objective truth that does exist. And that is that. But if you're a journalist, you almost never have that luxury. I'm not going to have somebody who filmed everything I'm going to write about. So you have what, you know, Donald Rumsfeld loved to call like the known knowns, the unknown unknowns, the known unknowns. Like, and so, you know, the late poet, Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. The late poet. (laughs) So, uh, I was like, okay, well we don't have all the information, but here's what we do have. We can figure out what we know. We can figure out what we'll never know. And then we can also figure out what is probable um, based on a certain amount of information. And it isn't mean that we can prove everything, but it does mean we can make very good, good approximations of truth based on actual facts and interviews, people's recollections. Like, do I think children died at Hot Deligaran? Like, that's the big question. We're smart enough to figure out the difference between a skull, a coconut and a rock. Yeah, there's an objective truth there. And to pretend there isn't, and it's really fun to make it as confusing as possible is just ridiculous. So is do I think do I think the children died there? Well, I know that some children were beaten so badly that they were unable to function on their own for the rest of their lives. Like they had such brain damage that they were we have accounts of, of people who witnessed others either killing themselves or or getting hurt so badly it looked like they died or looked like you know they never saw them again like they saw what happened and then they never saw that child again we have teeth many of which had roots on them even though the island has tried to pretend that's not the case and we know there's small children's remains that were cut and there's also analysis from some of the labs that say that that they were burned and fleshed and burned so there was a whole bunch of that and we know that a number of these remains were found near the old furnace in the basement. And so there's like a lot of additional detail and information that makes it very clear that it does not look good, that it does not look good. They did find a lime pit, right? But they didn't find anything in it, but they saw that somebody had put a ton of lime in there. And so what's the significance of that? Lime allows things to decompose much more quickly. We also know that teeth are the part of the human that lasts usually the longest. So if you bury something, you may lose a lot but the teeth tend to stick around a lot longer than everything else. Tooth enamel else. is like the strong, one of the strongest things. Yeah, yeah, the teeth really do like last. And so even if you have disposed of almost everything else, it's super hard to totally get rid of all teeth. It's very, very hard. And so we learn all of these things. And we also know because France is a nuclear country, we know that kids who grew up at certain times in Jersey actually have like, if you look at the teeth, you can actually see... Um, very small, like, like signs of a nuclear, yeah, like the presence of nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can, you can age and date teeth that way. And so we also know a lot of things were not done with the remains that were found. There was also blood that the cadaver dog found in one of the baths. We never got to find out more about that. Like we don't even know where the bath went. They cut up the bath. They supposedly sent it out for analysis it's very unclear where this bath is now. We don't know where the remains are. We don't know if the police have kept them. So there's a lot 
to be checked still. But do I think that the children die there? Of course I do. Of course I do. How is it possible that some children didn't die given the evidence? That being said, the problem was, was when they did the investigation, they couldn't prove homicide, right? They couldn't, there wasn't somebody saying, you know, Bobby John never came home and here's Bobby John's teeth, right? They, no one was ever able to do that kind of very, very close police work, which was totally necessary. And there was nobody alleging murder. There were a lot of stories of, I saw what I thought was murder, but there was also a ton of suicides. I've never seen so many really young children kill themselves. Like How just, young? What are we talking about? I mean, much younger than you would ever expect to see. There were kids like who were as young as like eight or nine who were hanging Committed themselves. Suicide. Yeah. And there was one case um, told to me by one of the survivors of a kid who went out back and turned on the gas in one of the sheds and lit a match. And they said like, he said, we never found anything that time. And so these kids were just trying to get away and here they are on an island surrounded on all sides by ocean and nowhere to go. Um, that the home is surrounded by giant open fields and you can't just run and get anywhere. And this is an Island. People don't even, they don't even lock their cars because if your car gets stolen, it's going to show up like a few parishes over like in a day. Oh, we found it over there when the guy ditched it. Right. So like nobody worries that they're going to lose anything because it's such a little island. So if you're a kid and you're trying to get out of there, it's going to be really hard. Um, so it's it's a very difficult story to tell for me. But to me, the bigger story is that these children were part of a bigger situation of the island and the things that have happened on the island. They are probably, to me, the most disturbing of this, you know, the part that bothers and haunts me the most. But the island itself has has been such a powerful tax shelter for so many years and has been involved with so many different kinds of people that this I, I kind of imagine that some of the, the leaders of the island were really irritated that this is the thing that caused all these global headlines because for years they've been trying to, you know, have a clean reputation and not have people talk about some of the scandals of the past, which involved, you know, many other financial shenanigans. I think a lot of them felt very angry that issues of crimes against children at a children's home might be the thing that could like really hurt the island's reputation or make it really hard for them in the future. And so it's a, it's a, it is one piece of a bigger puzzle, the children's home, but the children's home was what drew me to look more closely. I was going to say tough shit. Cause we're about to talk about all that stuff. We haven't talked about anything yet. Well, this is just the beginning. I mean, we just, I just really wanted to talk a little bit about my feelings as I go back to the islands, um, maybe end it there. And then we can talk more about what happens, you know, when I get there. We've, we've touched for like five seconds on things that we're going to talk about a bunch later on. Yeah. And that's just our first podcast. This is the first one. And we haven't even, we haven't even really started yet. We're kind of setting the stage. So, so you're about to get on a plane, what, in two days, you said? I'm going to get on a plane shortly Yeah. and I'm, um, I'm going to have some time seeing people in London first, and then I'm going to go over to the Island for, for several days. We're going to be there probably just for several days. I'm going to see some friends because I also have a lot of lovely people on the Island who are good friends. And then going to see some of the politicians, some of the survivors, uh, some of the activists, and there's some amazing activists. So whenever something like this happens, 
I think a lot of people in this world right now are so scared of the level of corruption that we see in many places, right? Jersey is a slightly more extreme example of what we might see anywhere if it's allowed to operate without any real accountability. But Jersey is to me like maybe one of the first really serious places I've seen that really encapsulates like a lot of the symptoms of what we're now seeing in a lot of places. And you'll laugh. Like I reached out to one of the politicians on the Island and he was like, he was like, you know, it's terrible what we're dealing with here. But he's like, we're also watching what's going on in the United States right now with January 6th and the insurrection and, you know, what's going to happen with Roe versus Wade. And, and so we all have kind of had this really interesting relationship that's evolved over time where I will be investigating things on the Island, but a lot of times the Islanders will be asking me about what's happening in the United States. And it's in some ways very, it's very, cathartic to acknowledge to each other our fears about the things that are happening in each of our regions with each other and with each other's regions. And I think that people should be more hopeful that there is a wider global, almost like a communitarian style. Like if you're looking at a global community, like a communitarian feeling of a fellow feeling of, we really don't want these to happen in any of the places where we live. And they 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 are truly getting to a place where as we're speaking, they really recognize what corruption might look like or what wrongdoing is in a way that they were not doing when I first started going to the Island. I really feel that the Islanders have like had sort of a wake up call with a lot of what has recently taken place. Can, can we just say quickly, like the wrongdoing versus corruption, because one of the things in, in the little that I know about Jersey, it's like, a lot of things they're doing, like it's not corrupt. That's actually how it's, that's how it's set up. They're doing, they're following the laws. But when we look at it, we're like, that's insane. So it is, it's wrong, but it's not corrupt. It's just, that's how they roll. There's absolutely this ever widening area of the legality is, te- is technically okay versus what's actually happening. And I will say this, I'm looking at actual corruption. I don't spend my time arguing about that shouldn't be legal because I I do think that that is something legislators should be looking at and talking about. I am looking at stuff that's beyond what is legally okay. But the island, part of the reason the law offices of the island, which is really like the beating heart of the island is the law offices because all of the key leaders of the island basically started as lawyers or were judges or have a very strong knowledge of the law. And a lot of that came from the financial side. It's, it's not just general law. It's like highly sophisticated financial law involved in how Jersey runs its money. And a lot of those people end up also being in charge of running the island. And so they are beyond good at the law side they're very good at bureaucratic battles. They're very good at the legal sophistry that is needed to say at the end of the day, it's completely on the level, you know, like they love to say like all the proper safeguards were checked. It is completely on the level. And what they mean when they say that is we already looked at the legalities and we have found a way to do this. So it's technically legal. And so your point, that's a very, very good point. Um, that a lot of things that are technically legal are not something you could call illegal. You can't call 
I think you could call some things corrupt that are legal, but but you're starting to get into a really messy area, right? That's the bottom line. But we're going to talk about things later on down the road where you don't need to be a great critical thinker to say. That's legal, but it doesn't look it right. It makes no sense at yeah. all. Like, this is how they yeah. govern their island. This is how they police their island. When we talk about the policing, we're going to look at that. And I am going to say, that's insane. Well, I think that we're saying that in the United States, too, about a lot of the things that are, quote unquote, legal in our financial system and increasingly in our political system, right? We're all really afraid of can can elections be stolen using our own framework because people are so motivated to find ways around the rules. But I think I think the bottom line is, is as I go back, I kind of want to wrap it up on going back because we aren't going to be able to go down every rabbit hole on this podcast. But we, we wanted to get the podcast started and we wanted to start to talk about different things we've touched on here. But um, as I get ready to go back, I definitely am always a little nervous when I go to the islands because they really do have their own legal system and they don't run it the way others might run it. They run it the way they would like to run it which means there's a lot of versatility in it and there's a lot of ways to get things done that you can be corrupt within the law. And I think that that is something that if you're an American and you realize I'm coming into a place that has the ability to do really bend their law to meet its needs. And and one of their key judges and, and, officers said that he said you know i realized that we could create it to work for us uh and he said and in areas where there wasn't any law i just would make it up (laughs) yeah there's real power there there's real power there and they have a huge amount of resources and so it should people be afraid or should people be concerned or should people feel intimidated yes they should they should there's not very many places in the world that have uh, a small base, but huge resources and also legal sophistication to really run circles around almost any opponent or just freeze them out, right? Like a lot of um, a lot of investigators in America have told me, if we find that something leads to Jersey, we know we're not going to ever get any information out of them because they're just not going to play ball with us. This is Leah McGrath-Goodman, and you're listening to Column C. You can also find Column C on Substack under Column C by LMG, a column about corruption, climate change, commodities, crypto, all things curious. Go and have a look, sign up. It's not a contract. It just puts you in the game.